I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we're interpreting the Gospel of John. Our text is John chapter 11. John 11 is the story about Lazarus. Well, it's really a story about the power of Jesus and a story about faith in Jesus, the two great themes of John's Gospel. Jesus has just declared authority over all life, even over his own life and death. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. John ten eighteen. Who do you want to entrust your life to? To a doctor? Well, that's wise at times, though significantly limited. To a politician? Well, that's much less wise. To yourself? Well, you do have responsibility to care for yourself and to make wise choices, but you can't give yourself life, and you can't long preserve your life. Who do you want to entrust your life to? How about the one who sees all things as they truly are, because he's come from God and he is in fact God? How about the one who has the power to lay down his own life and take it up again? The one from whom all life has come. Jesus will give his third I am statement with an object in this chapter. With each statement so far, he's also performed a sign to affirm the truth of his declaration. He declared, I am the bread of life, and then he multiplied bread and fish to feed thousands. Do you trust Jesus to give you nourishment? He then declared, I am the light of the world, and healed a man born blind from birth, not blind from sickness or battle wound or accident, but blind from birth, until Jesus opened his eyes to see. Do you trust Jesus to give you sight? He now declares, I am the resurrection and the life, and is going to follow that statement with the resurrection of a man already four days dead. Do you trust Jesus to give you life? Life now and life after death. The resurrection of Lazarus is the seventh and greatest of the signs John reports in this first section of the gospel, the public ministry of Jesus. They began his ministry at the wedding feast, and now they're going to end it with the resurrection of Lazarus. This sign's not hard to read. This sign affirms Jesus' claim to power over human life. The power that is in Jesus overcomes death. This is true in this life, as he declared in 10.10, I have come that you might have life and might have it abundantly. And it's true of life after death, as he declared in 6.40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Jesus' life overcomes death. This story is reported in four scenes, four personal conversations with Jesus. Jesus and the disciples, Jesus and Martha, Jesus and Mary, and Jesus and Lazarus. We start with Jesus and his disciples. And remember, Jesus has left Jerusalem. John's not going to tell us exactly where he is at the time of this story. But at the end of the last story, due to increased animosity against Jesus, he had withdrawn out near the Jordan River to the place of his baptism. It seems like Jesus is in a holding pattern, like a plane circling an airport, waiting for the right moment to land. He remains in Judea. He's not far away, but he is some distance from Jerusalem, waiting for God's timing 
before initiating the final confrontation with the leaders of Israel. This first conversation with his disciples is in John 11, 1 through 16. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may waken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. There is so much to observe here. Let me first just point out this intriguing comment about Mary. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. It's not so much intriguing from the literary point of view as from the historical point of view. John's going to tell this story of Mary anointing Jesus' feet in chapter 12. He hasn't mentioned it yet. But here, when he's talking about Lazarus, it seems that people know who Mary is better than they would know who Lazarus is. Of course, for us, if you just mention the name Lazarus, we all think of this Lazarus, who was just raised from the dead, but none of the other gospel writers included this story, and we don't know why. But people wouldn't have heard it, not broadly. Richard Balcom has wondered if the other gospel writers didn't include it because they wrote while Lazarus was still alive, and like Jesus, he was targeted by religious leaders. So out of concern for Lazarus' safety, they didn't mention him in their gospels. We certainly don't know if that's the reason. It's a plausible thought. It's just a thought. But it does remind us how often there are good explanations to mysterious facts. We don't know what they are, and that makes it all the more mysterious to us. But if we knew, we would understand, and it would make sense. And we go, oh, that's why they didn't include it. So we don't know, but it's, it's worthwhile coming up with plausible ideas because there is one. We just don't know what it is. What interests me most about this verse is that it indicates to us that John was writing to real people who were already familiar with the other gospel reports, but who hadn't heard everything. They'd heard about Mary. They knew about the washing of Jesus' feet, but they might not have heard the story about Lazarus. And this was the first time that it was written down, and it's being written down by John, who was a firsthand witness. In verse 4, Jesus makes a comment similar to his comment about the blind man of chapter 9. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Just as the man born blind was allowed to suffer, to participate in the glorious work of God, and from that suffering also receive a sight he may never have had otherwise, 
So also Lazarus and his sisters are allowed to suffer that the glorious work of God might be displayed and that they might benefit from this powerful validation of their faith in Jesus. I'm also struck by the timeliness of the statement for us right now during the coronavirus pandemic that has engulfed the world. You know, think about these words. This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. The statement itself does not apply directly to our situation. That would be taking it out of context. And in truth, this virus is ending in death for thousands. Here at the beginning, China, Iran, Italy have experienced significant death tolls. EU borders closed yesterday. The U.S. just advised citizens not to gather in groups larger than 10. We do not yet know how bad this is going to get. We do know more people are going to die. This sickness is not to end in death is a promise to Lazarus, not to all believers. We do not have a promise that we will not get sick and die. That's a misunderstanding of biblical truth. In truth, if you do not die from accident or from murder, you will die by sickness. We have a hundred or so years to live, and then we all die, no matter the strength of our faith. No faith healer has escaped the final sickness, the corruption of the body that leads to death. Ultimate healing comes in the next life, not this life. But there is a principle here that applies. This sickness has been allowed this pain and suffering and fear, that people might see God and that God might be glorified and the Son with him. So just as that was true for these people gathered around the death of Lazarus, so that is also true for us. Human beings need to be shaken at times so they will take their eyes off this life that is not really life and ask more important questions about true life, true life here and true life to come. God calls his own to participate in this suffering. And it doesn't mean he doesn't love us. We're told here Jesus loves Martha and he loves Mary and he loves Lazarus. And so he waits two days. It's like, wait a minute. He, he loves them. And so he doesn't go to save Lazarus out of death. He doesn't go to prevent suffering and sadness. No, his love will work out for us in the end. He, it works towards the good of all those who love him. Suffering does not always bring about evil in our lives. Sometimes suffering brings about good, and we trust God with that. Like the blind man, like Lazarus, like Jesus, all who believe participate in some way in the corruption and brokenness of the world. We remain in the world. We're not of it, but we're in it. Do we glorify God in sickness and in death? Do we help others see the light of truth in him? Witness through suffering is a constant theme of Christian experience. It's in Scripture, and it's been through the generations. Now, how many stories have you heard of a believer who has died well, of doctors or nurses, friends or strangers who receive a witness to the goodness and reality of God through a believer who is prepared to go through suffering and is prepared to go through death in order to meet God? God is with them in the suffering, and it becomes apparent to people around them. God allows suffering to come into Lazarus' life in order that he might participate in the glorious witness of who Jesus is. That God allows suffering in our lives as part of his good plan is clear in this story. Jesus intentionally chose to wait. 
And the sisters are going to say, if only you were here, Jesus. And he could have been. He chose not to be. The plan was for Lazarus to die. Sometimes God allows us to walk in suffering. Even in that suffering, the life of Jesus overcomes death. But to experience that life, that life of Jesus that overcomes death, we have to walk with him even when it looks like he's leading us towards suffering. Jesus says, let's go. The disciples had misunderstood his hesitation. They thought he was staying away from Jerusalem because of the danger. Bethany's too close to that danger. We don't want to go there. We left to let things die down. You know, they want to stone you. We thought we were staying put. If we didn't go right away, why would we go now? They had misunderstood the delay. You know, like his brothers who misunderstood Jesus' plan about going up to the Feast of Booths, the disciples missed the values that are underlying the decision of Jesus. They don't see what Jesus sees, and so they can't understand Jesus' decision-making. Experiencing life is not the same thing as doing everything you can do to protect your life. You know, experiencing life means walking in the light of Jesus. There are 12 hours in the day when you have light. Walk according to the light of day. Jesus is our light. We really do base our decisions asking, what would Jesus do? Or maybe even better, what is Jesus leading me to do in my situation? To walk in the day is to walk according to the values and wisdom and guidance of Jesus. To walk in the night is to walk according to the values and wisdom and guidance of the world. Thinking about the coronavirus again reminds me of the challenge to walk in the light. It's not always clear what we should do. I think of two biblical images. In the Old Testament law, God gave instructions to quarantine people with infectious disease to protect the community. And so we're to act wisely to protect life. And that's one picture. The other picture is of Jesus speaking to and touching the sick, the leper, the outcast. So you have both of these pictures in Scripture of, of wisdom and of compassion. And they're kind of they're held together in tension. I just read a bit of advice from Martin Luther during an outbreak of the plague in Wittenberg, and he keeps these tensions together. Luther wrote, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me, and I've done what he has expected of me, and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely. You see the tension there. There's, a, there's wisdom to act to protect life. But there's also a trust in God to give aid, to help. Luther's interpretation of neighbor is broad. In, in, his, in the whole letter, he argues for the continuation of the ministry to which you believe God has called you and an openness to assist whomever in the community God gives you opportunity to help. Walking in the light with Jesus includes wisdom and preservation of your own life and the lives of others and also compassion and courage to go where God leads. The wisdom of Jesus comes from his vantage point, his perspective on life and reality. He sees clearly that death is not the end. Death is a door to life. At the same time, all life is precious to God because all people are made in his image. Life is a gift. At the beginning of life and the end of life, 
Life is precious to God. We trust him with all life. He is sovereign over our lives. We are not. God determines whether our sickness leads to death or not. We trust him and seek to give witness to his glory, no matter how God chooses to end our story. We do this by walking in the light of the truth of Jesus. The disciples are a bit slow to catch on to Jesus' explanation about Lazarus. He said, Lazarus is asleep. They say, that's good. Let him rest. Jesus speaks more plainly. He's died. I wonder if he was exasperated with them. Maybe not. He knows his disciples well. He adds, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Suffering is not the end of the story. There's purpose in Lazarus' death. I love how Thomas ends the scene with these words, let us also go so that we may die with him. And I don't read that as an optimistic call to a glorious death. Let's go and let's die with Jesus. Now I read it more as a melancholy resignation to what awaits if they go back to Jerusalem. You know, I read it as Thomas the realist, not Thomas the optimist, which interestingly adds to how we think of Thomas. We usually call him Thomas the doubter or doubting Thomas because after the resurrection he refuses to believe until he himself touches the wounds in Jesus' hands. Here, though, he is Thomas the courageous, willing to go to death with Jesus. There is also an affirmation in his words, maybe not intended by him, but fitting with the story. The way to true life is to walk with Jesus, even if the way of Jesus seems headed towards death. Following the light of Jesus leads us out of the darkness of natural human existence. Abiding in the word of Jesus sets us free from the power of sin and the values of this world. And abiding in his word is more than living a moral life. It's more than doing the right thing. Thomas models something else for us here. True life is not just about doing the right thing. True life is about doing the right thing with Jesus in relationship with Jesus, walking with Jesus. Jesus' life overcomes death when we walk with him. The next conversation is with Martha. This is John eleven seventeen to 29. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she had heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Martha starts by expressing her belief in the power of Jesus. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus responds with a general theological statement accepted by many religions, your brother will rise again. Martha affirms that theological statement. 
I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, I'm very curious to know how she said that. I wish, I wish we had her voice with it. Did she say it with resigned hope to wait for the future? I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Or did she say it with a questioning expectation? I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But what about now? Jesus responds, however, Martha said it, Jesus responds to the broader theological truth by directing the conversation to himself. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Theology must become personal to have effect. Abstract truth does not change our lives. Coming face to face with Jesus changes lives. I'm reminded of something John Wesley wrote in his journal. This is from February the 7th, 1735, the day after a Wesley arrived in Georgia to serve as an Anglican minister for colonists. He had been greatly shaken by potential death during a storm at sea. Having observed the peace of Moravian families on board the ship, in contrast to his own fear, Wesley asked to speak with the Moravian leader in Georgia, August Spangenberg. This is how Wesley recounted that conversation in his diary. Spangenberg said, My brother, I must first ask you one or two questions. Have you the witness within yourself? Does the Spirit of God bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? I was surprised and knew not what to answer. He observed it and asked, Do you know Jesus Christ? I paused and said, I know he is the Savior of the world. True, he replied, but do you know he has saved you? I answered, I hope he has died to save me. He only added, Do you know yourself? I said, I do, but I fear they were vain words. When asked about Jesus Christ, Wesley responded with a broad theological statement, I know he is the Savior of the world. Spangenberg pressed in to make it personal, but do you know he has saved you? Wesley said, yes. But he only said it because he knew it was the correct answer. Um, He also knew that he didn't truly believe it in his own soul. Saving faith is not assent to theological truths. Saving faith involves personal knowledge of Jesus Christ, personally believing that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Jesus extended a strong personal invitation to Martha. He moved her from broad theological truth and brought it to himself. He made it personal. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? It's a strong offer because it's clear and direct and ask Martha to make a choice. Life doesn't come from assenting to abstract theological ideas. Life comes from personal belief that those ideas are indeed true. Martha responds to the invitation of Jesus with a personal statement. Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. She came to Jesus distraught. Jesus pointed her to himself. She followed where he led, communicating out loud her faith in him, and then she left with hope. 
When we pay careful attention to the words that Jesus spoke to Martha, we hear a distinction between physical death and eternal death. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. That's physical death. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That's eternal spiritual death. As we recognize with Thomas, true life comes from walking with Jesus. In this conversation with Martha, we can also add the idea that true life comes through personal faith in Jesus. Our walk with him is not only moral, doing the right things, and not only theological, believing the right things. Our walk with him is a personal relationship. Jesus declares, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. Then he looks right at you and asks you, do you believe this? Do you believe in me? Can you see that in your mind and in your heart right now? Jesus is looking at you, and he has declared, I am the resurrection and the life. His eyes are on you. Do you lay your life into my hands? Do you believe in me? How do you answer Jesus? Jesus' life does not overcome death for you until you personally entrust yourself to him. Yes, Jesus, I believe you are my life. You are my resurrection. Martha goes to Mary to tell her that Jesus wants to speak with her. The third conversation is with Mary, and it's in verses 30 to 37. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Mary comes weeping, and Jesus weeps with her. For me, Jesus affirms here the value of lamentation, of expressing deep sorrow. To believe in life doesn't mean we are free from the pain, from the sorrow caused by death. We who believe still grieve, and it is right to grieve, and it is right to weep. It is not easy to interpret Jesus' response to the mourners that comes in verse 33. First, Mary repeats Martha's sentiment, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. We're not told that Martha wept. I assume she didn't or she wasn't when she was with Jesus. Mary is crying and also the mourners who come with her. Confronted with their weeping, Jesus has an emotional response. And my Bible says in verse 33, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. I was surprised once in a Bible study, a friend was reading from a German Bible and that friend pointed out that her text said Jesus was angry and saddened. I assume that the word for deeply moved in spirit, you know, the Greek word, which is translated in English Bibles as disturbed or groaning, could also mean angry, and that for some reasons Germans prefer angry, whereas Americans prefer deeply moved. 
as I've learned since, the word really does mean angry. Carson translates it as anger, outrage, emotional indignation. It seems that the English translators are so uncomfortable understanding Jesus being angry at this moment that they soften the language in their interpretation. That softening of the language, you know, instead of being angry, it's he's moved in spirit, it prevents us from seeing Jesus as angry with Mary for weeping. And that's good. I think that's a bad interpretation. We should not understand Jesus' anger as directed towards Mary for expressing grief at the death of her brother. But unfortunately, softening the language prevents us from seeing what John saw and what he's reporting to us. Jesus was angry. Why? At what? Is Jesus angry at a lack of faith being exhibited by the sisters? Well, no, that doesn't agree with Jesus' personal words to the sisters. It doesn't agree with uh, this conversation he just had with Martha. Is he angry with the sisters and mourners for manipulating him to perform a miracle to bring Lazarus back? You know, they're pressuring him, Jesus, if you had only been here, you know, Jesus, can't you do something? No, I don't think that's where the anger comes from. Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus before he even came, and the sisters don't appear to be pressuring him. They're stating what they believe. If you were here, even now you could do something. You know, they have sincere sorrow that he wasn't here before when Lazarus died. So what makes Jesus angry? There is a possibility that his anger is roused by these mourners who follow after her. The text specifically mentions that they get up and follow her. And since they are professional mourners, it's, it's possible that their grief refuses to acknowledge any hope in the reality of life after death. And so there may be some sense of anger at the darkness of their grief, that it's, it's a grief that rejects life. That might be here. I think more likely, or maybe mostly, Jesus is angry at the reality of death and the persistence of the Jewish people to walk in death. In his conversations with the crowds at the Feast of Booths, Jesus told them that their opposition to him lined up with Satan's opposition. The mission of Jesus is life through truth. Those who oppose Jesus oppose life. The mission of Satan is death through deception. Jesus charged him with being a murderer and a deceiver. And in chapter 10, Jesus lines up leaders of Israel with that work. They are thieves who come to kill and steal and destroy. That's the work of Satan. And as long as they keep people bound in the darkness, they are doing the work of death. Jesus, on the other hand, came that we might have life, abundant life. Death and persistent holding on to the way of darkness, the way that leads to death, I think these things make Jesus angry. He is angry at corruption, angry at deception, angry at death, and angry at a persistent lack of faith that holds on to these things. This anger is not antithetical to his compassion. In Jesus, the two work together. He sees the plight of all men and women, and he weeps. He's not weeping here at the death of Lazarus. You know, he knows he's getting ready to raise him from the dead. I don't think he's even weeping at the sorrow of Martha and Mary. Uh, possible. You know, how would you feel if you saw great sorrow in people you loved, knowing that in just a couple of minutes you're going to turn that sorrow into joy? Maybe you would weep for them, for the sorrow they have endured. That's possible. Um, knowing that he's about to raise Lazarus, I think that Jesus may be weeping here at the blight of death that has fallen on creation 
and at the darkness in the hearts of the men and women gathered around who refuse the light of life. He knows that some are going to believe, but he also knows there are people in the crowd who are going to reject him even after he raises Lazarus from the dead. With Thomas, we saw that life is not simply doing the right things, but it's doing right with Jesus. With Martha, we saw that life is not simply believing right theology, but personally believing, trusting Jesus. With Mary, I think we see that life is not about ignoring death, but includes mourning over the reality of death, even as we hope in Jesus. Life with Jesus includes anger and sorrow over the brokenness of this world and the participation of men and women in the work of death, in the darkness, refusing the light. The fourth conversation Jesus has is with the dead man. This is verses 38 to 46. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. In the final victory of life over death, we are completely passive. We lie dead, and he will choose or not choose to call our name. There is nothing we can do. Death brings about complete submission, complete vulnerability. Lazarus had already been dead four days. A later rabbinic belief asserted that a person's soul hovered over the body three days, Then when decomposition had set in, the soul departed. And we can't know for sure whether this belief stretched back to the time of Jesus, but it certainly seems implied here by the twice we're told that Lazarus has already been dead for four days. Four days, he is dead dead. Four days in the tomb is long enough to ensure that Lazarus is truly dead. Everyone gathering expected the smell of death, the stench, to come forth from the tomb. Everyone except Jesus. Jesus expected the glory of God. I mean, even Martha, she affirmed that she believed that Jesus could bring about the glory of God. She just didn't know that he meant now that he was going to bring about the glory of God. Jesus expected the glory of God to come forth. Jesus expected the glory of God to be displayed and to show him to be the author of life. So he cries out, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out. Jesus commands, unbind him, take off those clothes of death. He is free. Imagine yourself dying. 
imagine as though you have just fallen asleep for the last time. You are not going to wake up. See yourself lying down on a on a long flat stone. There is a funeral for you. Your body is lowered into the grave. You have no power, no ability to wake up. No one can help you. They tried all they could. You died. You are buried. You are now completely vulnerable to the authority and power and goodness of God. You can do nothing to wake yourself. Who are you trusting for life? In the end, are you trusting in yourself? Are you trusting that your goodness and your religious activity and your faith are powerful enough, good enough, to move God to raise you to eternal life? Or do you know, do you see that you have not been good enough? Your behavior is not going to force God's hand in your favor. Do you trust yourself or do you trust his mercy and his grace? Do you personally believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the resurrection, the life? Do you believe that in him God is holding on to you? If you do, as you imagine yourself lying in death, can you hear him calling your name? Wake up, my child, and you rise up. And he tells those around you, take off the grave clothes, unbind him, set him free. Take off her grave clothes, unbind her, set her free. Can you hear it? Can you imagine your body being transformed, the dead body being transformed into a glorified new body, free from sin, free from corruption, free from death, at the call of your name? Thomas, Martha, and Mary model for us aspects of experiencing life through relationship with Jesus. In this life, we experience his life. Abundant life is experienced through a walk of faith with Jesus. Lazarus models for us the reality that our life really is completely in the hands of someone else, in the hands of Jesus. This passage ended with two different responses to the sign of Jesus raising Lazarus from the death. There are two different responses. Verses 45 and 46. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Some of them didn't believe, and they went to tell on him. This sign proved to be a tipping point for the opposition to Jesus. It is the end of his public ministry. Let's conclude our lesson from today with the verses that end the chapter. These are verses 47 through 57. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. 
Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so they might seize him. The intense opposition has coalesced now into a determined plan to kill Jesus. Knowing this, Jesus ends his public ministry. He withdraws to the city Ephraim, a town about 12 miles or about 20 kilometers from Jerusalem. The priests and Pharisees plan to arrest him. The people wonder if Jesus will show up at the Passover, just now about to be celebrated in Jerusalem. And as always, Jesus waits on the Father's timing, entrusting his life and his mission into the hands of God. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of the Gospel of John, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.